Hi, I'm John Foster, and this is a production of Left to Burn, the podcast of thebattleground.eu. Russia's military incursion into Ukraine has lasted nearly two months now. The focus of the fighting has recently shifted. The Russians no longer seem intent on the capture of Kiev and other cities in the north and west of the country. Rather, they've shifted to a concentration on the Donetsk Basin. There's some fairly obvious reasons why they should be interested in this particular part of Ukraine. It's proximate to the Russian border, thus simplifying supply chain and other logistical problems. The eastern provinces contain most of the country's heavy industry. They're also home to a large proportion of Ukraine's ethnic Russian population and the Russian-backed breakaway regions of Luhansk and Donetsk, on whose behalf the invasion was notionally undertaken. In the course of the invasion, there have been extensive discussions in Europe, North America, and elsewhere about who is at fault for a war that seems on the verge of spiraling out of control. The most common answer on offer is Vladimir Putin. This has a great deal of prima facie plausibility. Mr. Putin has run Russia as an oligarchical kleptocracy for the better part of two decades. He has, on numerous occasions, expressed the view that the collapse of the Soviet Union, which he served as an officer of the KGB from 1975 to 1991, was a catastrophic blow to Russia's position in the world order. He has also, on more than one occasion, expressed the view that Ukraine is not actually a separate country, but more properly viewed as a Western province of Russia. He showed a willingness to employ the full spectrum of resources to augment Russian power internationally, from propaganda to cyber warfare to conventional military power. Others have sought to place the blame on NATO with the underlying premise, sometimes explicit, sometimes not, that the United States has actually been the prime mover. The latter proposition also has a certain inherent plausibility. The readiness to reconfigure foreign governments to suit its own national interests has been a recurrent feature of U.S. government policy for more than a century. Putting aside the case of the Philippines, which the United States took over from Spain in 1898, and in which colonization and military occupation mixed together, the era of direct U.S. military involvement began in earnest with the occupation of Cuba in 1906 and continued in various places throughout the Western Hemisphere, most notably in Guatemala in 1954, in the Middle East, in Iran in 1953, and Afghanistan and Iraq after 2001, and in Asia, where the brutal U.S. war in Vietnam officially ran from the arrival of U.S. Marines in 1965 to the ignominious departure of U.S. forces in March 1973, although there were U.S. advisors in-country as early as the Eisenhower administration. The techniques employed in various U.S. attempts to reconfigure and to occasionally simply overthrow sovereign governments have run the gamut from various forms of soft power and propaganda to the insertion of advisors, trainers, and other similar assets to avert military involvement. Many of these actions constitute textbook cases for realist and neorealist theorists of international relations who tend to view international politics from diplomatic and economic interactions to out-and-out warfare as guided by straightforward calculations of power and advantage. The views of the University of Chicago international relations theorist John Mearsheimer have come to be a touchstone for people looking for support for some form of U.S. culpability. In 2014, in the wake of the Russian seizure of Crimea, Mearsheimer published an article in Foreign Affairs entitled, Why the Ukraine is the West's Fault. Around the same time, Mearsheimer gave a talk to a University of Chicago alumni group in which he elaborated on these views. As of today, the video of that talk posted on YouTube has been viewed more than 25 million times. The reception of Mearsheimer's views has cast into relief a number of fault lines, both on the leftward and rightward ends of the political spectrum. Neoconservatives have generally rejected Mearsheimer, with some, such as Anne Applebaum, going so far as to question whether Mearsheimer is somehow complicit either with Russian propaganda or in the actual strategic thinking that led to the invasion in the first place. By contrast, conservatives of the Trumpist and populist persuasions have embraced Mearsheimer's views since they can be read as a defense of Vladimir Putin. 
Putin is, for them, an object of veneration, a defender of white Christian civilization, and a confirmed enemy of the gay and the woke. Those similarly inclined take the view that U.S. and EU policies aim at the expansion of a variety of milquetoast liberalism, the underlying agenda of which is destroying all that is white, Christian, and heterosexual. Mearsheimer's views have also gained traction with sections of the left, especially those for whom the struggle against U.S. imperialism in all its manifold forms is a guiding principle. On this view, the various expansions of NATO that have happened since the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1990-1991 have amounted to repeated provocations against Russia's interests undertaken on the basis of mistaken understandings of the broader U.S. geopolitical interests involved to say nothing of those of the Ukrainians themselves. Mearsheimer and his boosters on the left make rather strange bedfellows. Mearsheimer is hardly a progressive, much less a radical of any stripe, but he has a certain residual cachet among leftists resulting from The Israel Lobby and U.S. Foreign Policy, a book he co-authored in 2007 with fellow neorealist IR theorist Stephen Walt. Mearsheimer and Walt argue that Israel's attempts to lobby the U.S. government were deforming U.S. foreign policy and causing the United States to adopt policies that ran counter to its notionally objective interests. Predictably, Mearsheimer and Walt were pilloried by a wide range of supporters of Israel, for whom the unity of interest between the United States and Israel is an article of faith. At the same time, the authors received support from critics of Israel. Many of these were on the left, people who thought that Mearsheimer and Walt's book proved that they were correct on rational grounds as well as ethical ones. Mearsheimer and Walt were unmoved by the plight of the Palestinians in any other respect than its capacity to complicate U.S. foreign relations. The ex-communist novelist Arthur Kessler once noted, with respect to the unwillingness of leftists to support anti-communism because right-wingers supported it too, that you can't help people being right for the wrong reasons. For progressives, as well as those on the right who shared their critical perspectives on Israel, although clearly for the wrong reasons, the Israel lobby provided a sort of rational sanction for views that they would have held on other grounds in any case. The view that the so-called revolution of dignity which chased Russian proxy Viktor Yanukovych into exile in 2014, was engineered by the United States, is constructed from a series of inferences with more or less factual grounding. The United States has a long history of involvement in coups. In addition, U.S. policy toward Russia exhibits important continuities with its policy toward the USSR. It is well known that in 1990, then-Secretary of State James Baker promised Soviet President Mikhail Gorbachev that NATO would not move, quote, one inch eastward as a means of getting him to negotiate more freely on the status of East Germany. Claims that Baker was actually referring to Eastern Europe more generally, and that subsequent NATO expansion constituted a betrayal of this promise, have been a staple of Russian foreign policy discourse since the early 1990s. In matters more specific to Ukraine, it is often argued on both ends of the political spectrum that the U.S. government took an active role in fomenting the Euromaidan protests in 2013 and 2014, and that the U.S. government worked toward the creation of, of a far-right, in some accounts, Nazi government. In terms of unequivocal and generally accepted facts, the justification for such claims is thin. Proponents of this view often point to a conversation between Assistant Secretary of State Victoria Nuland and U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine Jeffrey Pyatt in February 2014, in which Nuland expressed a preference for Arseniy Yatsenyuk as a possible replacement for Viktor Yanukovych as President of Ukraine, and rejected greater EU influence with the comment, fuck the EU. The preference for Yatsenyuk is often viewed as dispositive by people espousing the theory that the U.S. engineered the coup. A well-known conservative, and at the time a leading figure in the Ukrainian Fatherland Party, Yatsenyuk had briefly been foreign minister in 2007, a position that he was appointed to by Viktor Yanukovych. 
Although Yatsenyuk held reactionary positions, he was clearly viewed as preferable to, and distinguishable from, Ole Kianibok, leader of the ultra-white-wing Svoboda party, as the transcript of the call makes clear. Likewise, when Newland says, fuck the EU, the point that she's making is that the U.S. government is hoping to work more closely with the United Nations in trying to get a political settlement. Given that the EU had failed to recognize Yanukovych's prevarications before his refusal to sign the association agreement that had been arranged between Ukraine and the EU in 2013, it is not entirely surprising that officials of the United States government were less than enthusiastic about continued EU influence in the process of trying to achieve a settlement in Ukraine. Ukraine had simultaneously been offered membership in the Commonwealth of Independent States, a customs union centered on Russia. It was made clear both by the Russian foreign ministry as well as by pro-Russian think tanks in Ukraine, such as the prosaically named Center for Systemic Analysis and Prognostication, that Ukraine's economy would be subjected to devastating consequences if it did not sign on. Once again, these things can be read in a number of ways, depending on one's presuppositions about the larger context of affairs. The EU clearly has problems, not the least of which being a democratic deficit that places far too much power in Brussels. But to create a simplistic equivalence between that and a customs union led by one of the most notorious kleptocracies in the world constitutes a serious distortion of ascertainable facts. Likewise, one could imagine that there might be consequences for trade and finance stemming from choosing the Western organization over the Eastern one. But there is a distinction to be made between advantages that one might enjoy versus attacks to which one might be subjected. There are other tidbits which contribute to the narrative, such as the fact that U.S. Special Operations personnel had been training Ukrainian special forces. This looks worse if one accepts the Russian claim that Ukraine, free of direct Russian influence, constituted a direct existential threat to a nuclear-armed power, with the fifth most active duty troops and the fourth largest military budget in the world. The presence of Spec Ops trainers is often viewed as of a piece with claims such as those about the existence of CIA-trained Nazi death squads or the existence of U.S. biological weapons research stations in Ukraine. The central difference here is that the presence of Spec Ops troops has been essentially public knowledge. Programs like the U.S. Department of Defense's Ukraine Security Assistance Initiative are not secret, whereas Nazi death squads and biological weapons facilities are essentially products of Russian propaganda and the fevered imagination of conspiracy theorists. Mearsheimer's position recently reiterated in an interview with Isaac Chotner in The New Yorker, is that great powers have interests in terms of international politics that are valid on their face. Thus, although a plurality of Ukrainians were apparently in favor of closer ties with the EU, these inclinations were trumped, so to speak, by Russia's desire to assert and maintain hegemony over the states with which it shares borders. At one point in The New Yorker interview, Mearsheimer asserts that Russia's actions are an example of great power politics rather than of imperialism. The basis for such a distinction is not addressed in the interview and would seem to be extremely difficult to make given Mearsheimer's stated views about the intrinsic justice of great power politics. In an article published in The New Statesman in March, the historian Adam Tews offered a compelling critique of Mearsheimer's approach. While Mearsheimer is right, Tews argued, about the underlying causes of the tension between Russia and Ukraine, this does not rise to the level of a compelling explanation of Russia's decision to go to war any more than the existence of imperialism explains Imperial Germany's granting of carte blanche to Austria-Hungary in responding to the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand and his wife. This is not a trivial distinction. Even Putin's advisors were apparently surprised that he was willing to go to war in this particular situation, not least because, questions of great power politics aside, it was not readily clear that doing so was actually in Russia's best interest. Stu's writes, 
Morality and legality are one reason for opposing war. The other is simply that over the last century, at least, it has a poor track record for delivering results. Other than wars of national liberation, one is hard-pressed to name a single war of aggression since 1914 that has yielded clearly positive results for the first mover. A realism that fails to recognize that fact and the consequences that have been drawn from it by most policymakers does not deserve the name. That does not mean that wars will not occur, but to postulate the future as an endless repetition of hyped-up militarism of 1914 is to deny any capacity for collective learning, and it's counterfactual, especially in an age of nuclear armaments. Tews argues, compellingly in my view, that Bishamer might, with more justice, be claimed as a tool of the U.S. foreign policy establishment rather than that of Russia. Instead of functioning as a justification of Russian imperialism, Mearsheimer might just as easily be seen as having lured Russia into a grisly new Afghanistan, to quote Tews again. A common theme among contrarians is the idea that Ukraine has been led down the garden path, made a proxy for the United States, and sold into a conflict with its neighbor over matters in which it does not have a legitimate stake, or in which its views are not a legitimate consideration. This assumes both that the desire of a large proportion of Ukrainians to participate in political and economic institutions which are not simply a means of Russian wealth extraction are chimerical, and that Vladimir Putin is incapable of learning from past events or of correctly evaluating the threat profile presented by a westward-leaning Ukraine. It also relies on a series of false equivalencies. The misdeeds of the U.S. security establishment are numerous and lethal, but this fact does not constitute a justification of Russia's gross violation of international law and the sovereignty of Ukraine. Nor does it constitute evidence that the United States caused Viktor Yanukovych to be deposed in 2014, rather than having acted as a cheerleader for a process in which change of leadership was only one of a number of possible outcomes. It is an indication of exactly how ridiculous things have become, that the Russians spent a lot of the lead-up to the war retailing the myth that Ukraine, a country led by a Jew and descendant of Holocaust victims, was the leading edge of European neo-Nazism. It is also indicative that the role of far-right ideologies in Mr. Putin's worldview, such as Alexander Dugin's fourth political theory, seemed to pass entirely unmentioned by those ready to insist that the government of Ukraine is a front for the Azov Battalion. Many would like to claim that the Russo-Ukrainian War is a vindication of the neo-realist perspective espoused by Mearsheimer and many other professional IR theorists. What it seems to show more clearly is the degree to which neo-realism generates explanations that masquerade as excuses.